the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas minister in Antioch, and a relief gift is sent for the church in Jerusalem. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 11, verse 24. Once again, that's Acts chapter 11, verse 24. In Hebrews 2, verse 1, those beautiful words and yet sobering words where it says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. The phrase there means to pay very close attention to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip or we should begin to drift away is what that means. My natural tendency is to drift. You ever been at the ocean? I remember as a kid all the time, we'd get in the ocean and mom and dad say, make sure you remember where the car is. Make sure you keep sight of the car. And of course, what would always happen? We'd be out playing in the ocean, goofing around. And then all of a sudden you look around and you go, where's the car? Where's the car? What happens is, is the current takes you along, right? Slowly, gently, tugging on you little bit by little bit without you realizing it. That's our natural tendency if we do not pay close attention to our walk with the Lord. And so he urged them to be purposeful in doing what? That they would cleave unto the Lord. The word there means, it's, it's a cool phrase. It means to continually continue with. <laughs> to continually continue with. It refers to persistence and loyalty. And they would need it considering the challenges of living in a wicked city like Antioch. We have to purpose. I'm going to spend time with the Lord today at this time. That's going to be that. And I understand we don't want to get legalistic. It says to purpose in your heart, not just to purpose with your mind. It needs to be a hard thing, but it can't be something that we just say, well, it'll just happen. No, other things will just happen. In your marriage, do you not purpose things? If you don't plan well for things, they don't just happen. People spell love, T-I-M-E. It's how our kids spell love. It's how your wife spells love. Jesus wants our time too. And we have to make a purpose, purpose in our hearts to do it, to be disciplined. It doesn't just happen. And the reason that Barnabas did this, that he encouraged them, exhorted them to action, verse 24 is because of his character, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith and much people was added unto the Lord. He was a good man. I hope that's my testimony someday. So these are inspired words that God gave to Luke. And this is what God's opinion was of Barnabas. He was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. What does that mean? 
Well, many was willing to take risks in following God's spirit. See, it would have been very easy for Barnabas to get up there, just similar like Peter, and to go, dear God, I am amongst a bunch of Gentiles. I am in trouble. <laughs> the word's going to get back to Jer- Jerusalem that I'm now the leader of this Gentile church up here. Oh, great. And yet he didn't. He was willing to take risks in following God's spirit. He was willing to step out in faith. For those of you who may not be familiar with Calvary Chapel, that's a part of who we are taking ventures of faith, stepping out into the unknown, trying something, seeing whether God's in it or not. When all my kids, we were teaching them to walk and they would take that first stumbling step of faith and maybe they didn't reach for the right thing and then they fell down. I didn't pick them up and give them a spanking and say, come on, you know better than that. You see your mother walk all day long. You see me walk all day long. You got three brothers. What's your problem, you know? No, hold on. No, 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 son. That's not how you do it. You do it like this. Let me take your hands. Why would our God be any different? You know what? You're a parent. You understand this. You're excited because they, oh, you know, you know how it is. Oh, they're taking a step. Yeah, you know, you want to get the camera quick before you lose it. Even if it's a misstep, you're so excited that they finally had the courage to take it. I think the Lord is pleased when we step out in faith. What's the worst thing that happens? The Lord says, no, no, that's, that's not how you do it. Step over here. And there's no shame in that. I always admired Pastor Chuck because he would say, you know what, we'll step out in faith and see if it's the Lord. And if it's not the Lord, we'll step back, right? There's no shame in that. Barnabas, what an incredible guy. He was a unique person in the early church. He stood out in how he loved and embraced other believers regardless of their background. He was the guy who reached out to Saul, remember? I mean, this was the guy who had seen, he's the one that we're gonna see later in Acts. He reaches out to John Mark, the deserter, the wishy-washy Christian, the leader who couldn't seem to make up his mind or have the courage to do what needed to be done, the sellout, the quitter. He reaches out to him. He embraced other believers regardless of their background, regardless of their failures, and perhaps the fact that God would forgive and restore a wayward Levite like him who'd forsaken his duties and moved to Cyprus. Maybe that had so overwhelmed him that he knew God could and would rescue any sinner who repented. Maybe that framed his love, I don't know. But whatever the reason, his testimony is awesome. And the result is that even more people were saved. It says here, and much people was added unto the Lord. And so as this revival is going on, like Philip and Samaria, as this revival breaks out with Barnabas in Antioch, Barnabas realizes that with all these people, he can't disciple them adequately alone. I can't do this. So verse 25, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. A church can only reasonably grow in connection with its mature believers if it's going to be any type of a healthy church. You know, Jesus took on 70 men, but really he only invested in 12, right? I mean, this is God Almighty come in the flesh. And most of his time was spent with 12 guys. Then really he only took on 70 guys as far as how he would influence them and send them out. If you and I are going to reach our city, first off, it means we need to grow up. We need to mature. But secondly, we have to then pour into others. Who are you pouring into? I heard someone say once, every one of us should have a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Every one of us. You should have someone that you look up to, you admire, that pours into you. You should have someone who's a peer, someone that has iron, is sharpening iron, that kind of sparks fly sometimes, but you edify each other. And then you should have a Timothy, someone you're pouring into. Have you ever considered this fact? Jesus called each and every one of us to go out and make disciples. What's the requirement for you to go out and make disciples? Just find somebody who's not as far along as you are and pour into them. 
It's that simple. It's that simple. Who are you pouring into? It's a church-wide job, not a leadership job or a pastoral job. It's our job as a whole. And so Barnabas knows he can't do it alone. And so he goes to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Saul, everywhere Saul went, trouble came. He's having to flee the church in Damascus by a basket. And then they want to kill him in Jerusalem. Finally, the church is just thinking, you know what we'll do? Saul, we feel like God's called you to go back home to Tarsus and minister to the people there. Nice, quiet Tarsus. But Barnabas brings the troublemaker because he's the perfect person for the job since Antioch will become the church that God intended full of both Gentiles and Jews. Paul had already had experience with that in Damascus. And so verse 26 says, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. As a pastor, I often hear from Christians, we need to get back to the New Testament church. But the pattern of so many New Testament churches is flawed, much like our churches today. It's no different. But if there's one church that I'd model ours after, though, it would be Antioch. My prayer has been since day one that God would make the church that I pastored an Antioch type of church. Because as we'll see in Acts, this was a church who embraced every person, regardless of culture or background, and then defended that unity vehemently when false teachers tried to break it. It was a church that emphasized the teaching of God's word and a dependence upon the everyday leading of the Holy Spirit. It was a church that sent its people out to plant other churches and to reach the unreached with the gospel. It was a church that ministered to the Lord, not just with or for the Lord. And isn't that the type of church we want to be? That's the church that I want to be a part of. Well, here we see the ministry of Barnabas and Saul. It says, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and they taught much people. Saul spent 10 to 12 years in Tarsus before Barnabas came and found him. That's a long time between God's initial call and the time when it starts to be fulfilled. Don't be discouraged if God has laid something on your heart and you haven't seemed to come to pass yet. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. We are so oriented to the now in our culture, to the immediate. And we get discouraged so quickly, don't we? Maybe you don't, but I do. I get discouraged very quickly. All it takes is about 75 seconds on Facebook, and immediately I think the whole church is going to hell. God's timing is perfect for you. It's perfect for me. How important it is that we stay the course, we be faithful, resting in the Lord. Well, now it was time. And so here we see Barnabas and Paul. What do they do? What are these church gatherings focused on? It says they taught much people. Formal instruction in God's word. Paul would later charge Timothy in 2 Timothy verses 4, 1 through 2. His very last commands that he would give to young Timothy. And he says this, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. What's the first thing he charges them? Preach the word. You're a pastor. Preach the word. That's your job. He instructs the young pastor in 1 Timothy 4.13 by saying, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. He says, till I come, and I get there at the church, this is what I want your services to be about. This is what I want you to spend your time during your services doing. Reading God's word, explaining what it means, and exhorting the listeners to do what it says. In Nehemiah 8, there's a beautiful passage where it explains 
what they did when all the people gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. Nehemiah 8.8, 8. if you can write it down, you can read it later. But they gathered all the people together to hear God's word. And it says, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly. They read it in such a way that as it was read, people understood it better. Then they gave the sense and then caused them to understand the reading. That's the job of a pastor teacher. That's the job of a Bible teacher is to read the word of God to God's people, to explain what it means, and then to exhort the listeners to do what it says. And that's why we place such a heavy emphasis on it in our services. Earlier, I talked about, you know, it's not a sin to be excited. Worship was amazing today that we could enter into the presence of the Lord with great joy. The Bible tells us to do that. Enter in his gates with thanksgiving in your hearts and enter into his courts with praise. We're supposed to do that. But at the same time, if it's just one big hullabaloo and everybody's jumping up and down, that's all we do. Then we have missed the point. I still remember a dear sister of mine, wonderful Christian, but she went to a very, very charismatic church locally here in the area. And she was so excited on Monday. We'd always talk about church and stuff. And she was so excited on Monday. She said, man, service was incredible. I've never been in a service like this before. We worshiped for hours and hours and hours. And in the teaching, you know, the pastor came and he was so anointed. Those are usually buzzwords for me. Usually that means nothing of substance happened. But I was excited for her. She was super excited. And so I asked her, I said, wow, I want to learn. What did you learn? And she stopped in her excitement. Went, I don't know, but it was awesome. And the problem is, is that if all we have is emotion and all we have is this emotional connection, a soulish experience, that might last. You might be pumped for a day or two. You're not sure why, but you'll be pumped. But what happens when it wears off? Then what's left? The Bible says that it's the word of God alone that has the ability to pierce through our soul and to get right to our spirit, our inner man, the part of us that fellowships with God. It can wade through all the emotions that we have and are going through and get right to the heart of the matter and strengthen us in our inner person. Only God's word can do that. That's why we place such a heavy emphasis on it in our services. And so it mentions here this interesting phrase, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, prior to this, Christianity had been seen not as its own thing. It's, it was seen as a sect of the Jews. You had the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees, you had the Ascends, you had the Zealots, you had other small groups, and then you had the Nazarenes, the Jews that followed Jesus, basically. Or the Christians called themselves the way. They didn't assume this name of Christian to themselves. Others gave it to them. Why? Well, the word here to be called, it referred to the name of one's business. For example, we see in the scripture, Alexander the coppersmith. That's what this word called means. How cool is that? Now it was Barnabas the Christian. That's what it meant there. His chief identifying factor was the Christian. All the other believers in Antioch, yeah, that's, that's Will the Christian. How cool is that? because that's the best way to identify our lives. That our lives' predominant attribute is our relationship with Jesus and all that it entails. That's a good name, isn't it? In our day, the name Christian is not usually thought of as a good name. Many in the church have changed and said, we're gonna call ourselves Christ followers now or disciples. I will hold the name Christian. One who follows Jesus is what that means. One who's trying to be like Jesus. I will hold the name Christian proudly and try to walk worthy of it. 
Verse 27, and in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the spirit that there should be a great dearth or famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, uh, there was an office of prophet prior to the completion of the New Testament. If you want to know why there's not now, I'd encourage you to get my series on the Holy Spirit. But these were often teachers of God's word. Some of them wrote the New Testament, and then sometimes God used them to predict the future. So while this revival is going on with Saul and Barnabas at the church there at Antioch, now these prophets, these teachers come up, and one of them named Agabus, God gives him an idea of what's going to happen in the future, and he shares it with the church. Now, the Lord used this guy Agabus a few times in Acts to predict the future. And while we don't need the office of prophet anymore, since they laid the foundation of the church by giving us God's word, the gift of prophecy is still in operation today. I've seen it in operation and come to pass in my life. I still remember at my bachelor party, a young man, we were praying, all all these guys were praying for me together at my bachelor party. And this young guy, 16 years old, he said, and Lord, I just believe with all my heart that you're telling me right now that you're gonna give will and ministry to young couples, young adults. And for 18 years, that's what I did. (laughs) All these young people would come in. I still remember one day, you know, I was reading all these articles about how the young people are falling away from the church and young people are leaving the church by droves. And I was just agonizing going, God, how do we reach young people? How do we bring young people in our church? How do we reach young couples? How do we minister to them? And as I was in the bedroom agonizing and praying and and I, I get this text from Bev, my wife, who's in the other room. It's kind of one of those things where if someone just comes up to you and says something, it probably wouldn't work. And so she texted me, or no, she emailed me and texted me and said, read your email. (laughs) And in the email, it said, I've been praying about all this stuff that's on your heart. And you know what the Lord told me? We are reaching them. We are reaching them. Look at all the people in the church. And I remember I had an epiphany in that moment. And I was like, hey, wait a second, we are. Then it was, well, then what are we doing right? How do we make sure we don't mess it up? How do we keep doing this? How do we get better at it? But that prophecy was over 20 years ago. God still operates this way. He still predicts the future at times when he sees fit, when it's necessary. For me, it was a great encouragement to see God's hand. Well, this famine would affect all the world, but that was a Greek euphemism that referred to the Roman Empire. So a worldwide famine would have gotten much more notoriety. This was one throughout the Roman Empire. And it mentions that it came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Uh, Claudius was the Roman emperor from 41 to 44 AD. And Suetonius, Dio Cassius, and Tacitus are three preeminent Roman writers who speak of famines during his brief reign. The famine hit hardest in Jerusalem around 45 AD, which shows that the Spirit was proactive in bringing it to the attention of the Antioch church. Now, why the Antioch church? Well, they say that at its height, Ignatius, who was a pastor of the church at Antioch at one time, he said that there was 100,000 people that would attend the church, the building there that they had built in Antioch, a 100,000 member church. That would mean that was a church that could help the people in Jerusalem. That's how crazy this revival was. And so the church at Antioch responds generously. Verse 29, then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brothers which dwelt in Judea. Every man according to his ability. That comes from a word that means an easy or favorable journey. It came to mean everyone who was well off financially or fared well in their finances. So The idea here is then the disciples, every man that was faring well in his finances, he determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. 
The Bible everywhere teaches that Christian giving should be done in accordance with our means. The Lord doesn't ask us to give what we don't have. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 2, Paul referring to the collection, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no offerings when I come or collections when I come. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 9 through 15, says the same exact thing. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient or beneficial for you, who have begun beforehand not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. They had pledged that they would give a certain amount of money to the church, and he says, you need to make sure it's done by the time we get there. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will or to choose to do this, so there may be a performance also out of that which you have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that which a man has and not according to that which he has not. For I mean not that other men be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their lack, that their abundance may also be a supply for your lack, and that there may be equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. This isn't communism. But the idea here is that when God has blessed you, the question you should be asking is, Lord, what do you want me to do with it? It's very easy when God's blessings come in to say, oh, thank you, Jesus, that's great but to receive them with open hands and say, okay, Lord, what do you want us to do with this? And I have found that when people have their hands open, God seems to fill them a lot more because they don't hold tightly to them. And if this is your home church, you should be giving to support it. I don't talk about that a lot, but we're in the scriptures and we should talk about it. If you're already giving, I'm not asking for more. You do what God has told you to do and you be faithful with that. But if this is your home church and you're not being faithful to give, You need to ask this question. What do you want me to give to you, Lord? And then when he tells you, you do it obediently, joyfully, and faithfully. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 7, it says, But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If someone comes and said, well, the Lord told me to give this much. I don't feel like it's a lot. I say, is that what he told you to give? Then you'd be obedient and faithful, joyful and cheerful when you do so. You'll never hear a criticism from me. I understand that there's a lot of controversy about the topic of tithing. I hold to a non-traditional view of tithing. I'm very personally convicted about tithing that God gets 10%, but I'm not convinced I see it in the New Testament in the same way. Before you think that's heresy, I'm not alone. There's quite a few wonderful Bible teachers within Calvary Chapel who teach the same exact thing. These are men who have had a lot of influence in my life. I believe wholeheartedly that you go to the Lord, you say, what do you want me to give? And then what he tells you, you be obedient and faithful. And I have found that's a lot more freeing than a number like 10%. Because then if the Lord tells you to give 15%, then you do it faithfully and obediently to him. But whatever it is, you need to seek him out. And if this is your home church, you need to be supporting here. You should be asking the Lord what he wants you to do above and beyond what's here, whether it's missions or outreach or something else that you can be a part of. The Bible talks about tithes and offerings. But the key element here is we want to be giving with a cheerful heart, with a generous heart. 
just like the church at Antioch did. And so we find here at the end of Acts chapter 11, which they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So a generous church, a good church. Is it the best church? I don't know. In the end, the best kind of church is the one where those who attend are finding their highest potential in what God wants them to do. And that may look different in different locales or time periods, but that means that we can be the best church if we're all pursuing him with all our hearts. Amen? Lord, we, uh, we want to be the best church in this area that, that you've called us to be. We want to be exactly where you want us to be. And that requires us to be right where you want us to be in our own individual walks with you. And so, Lord, it's our heart to draw near to you, to be close to you, to be sold out to you. We see so many wonderful things about the church at Antioch and Barnabas and Saul and all these awesome things that occurred in these verses. Lord, we want to have our own part in that as well. So would you work in our hearts today as we close, as we apply it to our lives and we say, Lord, I give you this area of my life. Would you empower us so we might do it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Each and every one of us has a purpose in God's family. What gifts has God blessed you with that might serve to benefit those around you? Maybe something as simple as sharing kind words of encouragement with a friend today. We can all be a blessing to those around us, and sometimes the smallest acts of kindness make the biggest difference. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.